This episode of The Weeds is sponsored by Texture. Texture is offering our listeners a 14-day free trial when you go to texture.com slash weeds. Also sponsored by MeUndies. Use our special URL, MeUndies.com slash weeds, and get 20% off your first pair. And by Wink. Wink is offering listeners $20 off their first order when you go to trywink.com slash weeds. I'm just very tall. Not as tall as Matt. Not that tall. I'm extremely tall. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. Matt Iglesias here with uh, Sarah Cliff and Ezra Klein. It's great to have the whole gang here in studio. Third episode in one week. Yeah. it's Oh, uh, yeah. Lots of weeds. Kind of a little Although this guys. gets into the, the best um, thread ever on the internet about how many days are in a week. Oh, God. Have you ever seen <laughs> yes, this? Boy. The single greatest video ever created is by John Boys, who's uh, an SB Nation in the Vox Media family. I think it's called, the video is called The Stupidest Boy in the World. Um, and you should go watch it. It is a narrativization of the single greatest forum thread in history. Nothing we do on the weeds is as good as that video. We will share a link in our Facebook group. So if you've not yes, already joined, um, you should go ahead and maybe that. maybe that later smooth. this summer we can talk about the French Revolutionary calendar, uh, in which they they tried to solve this odd number of days in the week problem. But um, until that, you might want to tide yourself over with Todd Vanderwerf's podcast. I think you're interesting. Uh, he, he sits down each week with, uh, you know, interesting, uh, fascinating figures from, from pop culture. And it's a, it's a great break from, you know, um, Ezra's gym video nonsense and, uh, whatever else. From cafe you're, tweets. You're a jerk. <laughs> you're being a jerk. It's a tense morning on the weeds. It's it really tough. Is. Okay. All right. What are we Let's talking about today? Policy. All right. So we're going to, we're going to talk through a couple things. First, Sarah Cliff had a big news break overnight. Uh, about the birth control mandate in Obamacare being repealed by regulation by, by Trump. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about a study th- about credit cards or something. I'm, I'm not, I don't really understand. About the allure of platinum credit about cards. About the allure of platinum credit cards. I just basically want my credit card to be heavy. That's yeah. all. That's the only thing. Um, but first, we're going to talk about mass incarceration and, and what is, and what is really driving it. So there is a great new book by, John Pfaff. Do you know what the book is called? Yes, it is called Locked In, The True Causes of Mass Incarceration, right. How to Achieve Real Reform. Um, and it has the thesis, I would say somewhat unwelcome thesis to would-be reformers, which is that um, whatever you may think of of the war on drugs or the propriety of having people uh, locked up for nonviolent, low-level drug offenses, that actually there's not that many people in prison for nonviolent low-level drug offenses. And the big buildup in the number of people in prison in the United States was driven by, one, an actual increase in the quantity of violent crimes, and two, an increase in the severity of the punishments meted out for the violent crimes, that over the past 15 years or so, uh, the crime rate has has tended to fall more like 20 years. Um, So, that one factor driving mass incarceration ha- has gone down, but the much more severe penalties are still in place. And, so, so I want to add yeah. some numbers to this real quick. And, and we're primarily talking here, we're, we're talking about state prisons, which have the overwhelming majority of prisoners. And it's worth noting it's a federal prison system. It has somewhat different dynamics, but only 16 percent 
16 of state prisoners are on drug charges. And of that 16%, only 5 to 6% of that group are both low-level and nonviolent. So we are talking about a fraction of a fraction. And, and this can be confusing because a lot of people come into prison on drug charges. And that matters because then they have probation, right? They're part of the criminal justice system. But because they tend to have pretty short sentences, the people left in are not low-level drug offenders. So it's, again, it's only 16% state prisoners on drug charges, only 5 to 6% of that group low-level and violent. You could solve that, and we would still have extraordinarily high international rates of incarceration. Right. And, you know, basically – the story is I was I was up on on, on Capitol Hill uh, the, the other day to talk about something completely unrelated to this, uh, but they were holding votes about a bill to uh, it, it had something to do with with uh, child sex trafficking um, and it you know was going to make the penalties quite a bit tougher and you know the more progressive members on the Hill were finding themselves in a tough spot because. They had gotten invested in the idea of reversing mass incarceration and and all this kind of you know stuff that has become uh, conventional wisdom at least among liberals. Um, but you're sitting there and you have to ask yourself like, well, do I really want to be the guy who voted against tougher penalties for people involved in child sex crimes? And you know, if you're in a safe seat, like you know, you don't care. You 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 stand on principle. Um, but the fear, you know, that that drives politicians on this is that all it takes is like one media salient crime that catches the public's attention. And the fact that you voted for lighter penalties in that kind of case, or one person who got out of jail early because of something you did. I mean, this was the uh, the Willie Horton case with, with Michael Dukakis in, in the 80s. He had some uh prison furlough program in Massachusetts. I think statistically speaking, the program, you know, worked fine. There was like no big problem with it. But one person who benefited from the program uh, did go out and commit some some grisly murders afterwards. And it was a, a real, you know, political weak spot for for Dukakis. And and to me, that's what's in Pfaff's book. He discusses uh, Michelle Alexander's earlier book, the, the New Jim Crow, that was very popular. And and the thing about her book is that it tells a story. It's, it's a tough story, but it's also a story that's sort of easy for a progressive politician to hear, which is that driven by a racist panic, there was this move to lock up huge quantities of basically nonviolent drug offenders, predominantly black and Latino. And it's fairly easy to say, if you like want to get ahead in the world of progressive politics, that you were against that, just like all of that, like nonviolent drug offenders being in jail is bad. Racist panic is bad. Mass incarceration. And is I'm going to jump in with a number here again. We did a poll with Morning Consult. And we found that 8 in 10 U.S. voters supported reducing prison sentences for people who committed a nonviolent crime and have a low risk of reoffending. So you get an 80 – I mean, you know, it's rare to pull something with 80 percent, but nonviolent drug offender, yeah, let them out. Fewer than 3 in 10 back short of prison sentences for people who committed a violent crime even if they also have a very low risk of reoffending. So that's – you move from extremely popular to extremely unpopular as soon as a crime becomes violent. And one of the kind of things in the FAF book, I have not read the book yet, but reading articles about it was um, kind of he really recognizes the role of prosecutors as very important in this story. Um, so one of the kind of amazing stats that I honestly wasn't aware of until, you know, this was 
brought up was that there's just been a massive rise in the number of prosecutors in the United States. This kind of starts with the crime wave in the 1970s and 1980s. But as that crime wave dissipates, it's not like we like lay off these prosecutors and they become, you know, some other kind of lawyer. They keep working as prosecutors. Um, You know, one of the numbers he cites in his book is that in 1970, we had 17,000 prosecutors working in the United States. That has now risen to 30,000 prosecutors in 2007. So we've nearly doubled the number of people whose job it literally is to prosecute people and bring charges against them and bring them to court. Um, And then one of the things you see is that prosecutor... um, Productivity, which I guess is the metric you use for um, to determining if you're, you know, a successful prosecutor, it's remained roughly steady. You know, they're putting prosecutors on average are putting about the same number of people per person in jail as they did. Um, what is this like in 1990 and 2007? Um, but just by the sheer fact of numbers, the fact you have so many more people working as prosecutors, that just means you have like a lot more people, you know, in jail. And I think that's. It's like not a super exciting story. Like, you know, Matt was saying, like, I think it's not like a narrative that's going to like fire people up as much that like, oh, local governments hired a lot of prosecutors and that's like causing some of this rise. But it was something, you know, I was, you know, after reading the Michelle Alexander book, like I had never even come across that. And I think that's like a very interesting part of what's going on with mass incarceration. I'm fired up about this narrative, actually. <laughs> I, I want to say a couple quick things here. One is I really want to call out, so Herman Lopez, our colleague, wrote a very long, detailed essay on, on Faf's book. It's called Why You Can't Blame Mass Incarceration on the War on Drugs. You should find it on Vox. Um, it is it is excellent. I learned we will link from it, it in the We'll link show it in notes. the show notes. Uh, but I, I really want to call that out because it, it's really good. And it, to your point about it, he really does focus in here on the prosecutor story. And just a couple things to add to that that I just Some of these I knew, some of these I didn't. But one of the weird things about the American criminal justice system is that we elect our prosecutors, right? They are there. It's a political office in in most places. I don't know if it's true in all places, but in most places. And prosecutors are elected or reelected overwhelmingly. Um, I think the number that he has here, uh, about 95% of incumbent prosecutors won reelection and 85% ran unopposed. So now like ask yourself, if you are a prosecutor and you enjoy your job and you have to stand for election and normally it's very easy, what is the only thing that could possibly happen that might lead to a campaign that makes you lose your job? And the only thing that could possibly happen is that somebody who came before you who had committed a crime was not given a long enough sentence and they got out and they committed another crime. And now it is being used to make you look like a soft on crime prosecutor who did not protect the people. So one thing, I, I Chris Hayes also, if you're interested in this, has a new book called A Colony in a Nation that is related to some of these issues. And we were talking, he was on my podcast and we were talking about this. And it's not like there's a good policy to pass where you can say prosecutors should not be elected, but it is not obvious that the incentives of running for re-election are the way you want to uh, discipline prosecutors. I think I think that's a bad thing. The other thing I just want to say, there's a really nice line from Herman in here that I, I just wanted to uh, grab because it sort of sums the whole thing up very nicely. And he writes – uh, about Fast Book, it all points to one conclusion. To truly eliminate mass incarceration, reformers will have to at some point shift more attention to dealing with the mass incarceration of violent offenders, not just low-level drug offenders, and do so with a focus on the state and local levels, particularly prosecutors in these areas. And the point he's making, which relates to what Sarah and, and Matt are saying here, is that at every level, the thing that you have to do is the harder thing. It's easier to do federal because you can just do it in one place, right? Congress can pass a law, and then it's like the whole federal system changes. It's 
it's easy to focus on um, nonviolent because it's much more popular. Prosecutors are hard to deal with because they're local and they're elected and there are a bazillion of them. It's a very, very tough problem. Um, and as much as we were making, I think we were before Trump got elected, beginning to make some real strides, particularly at the federal level, particularly in national politics. And there are really good things happening at the state level. You really getting to a point where we've reversed mass incarceration. Um, it's, it's going to be like a generations long work. You know, the other thing that seems relevant to, to me to say, because I've, I've seen uh, FAF's work sort of bubbling up and gaining more and more attraction, both with like our more criminal justice focused writers and, and a lot of people on the left, is that I, I do think that the underlying crime dynamics are really, really important here. And that a, a weird thing that happened, you know, that I sort of put on my personal like why Trump won bucket list is that the reduction in crime rates that had been going on for so long in the United States genuinely went into reverse in in 2015. And it is true that the murder rate in 2015 was still quite low compared to where it had been in the 80s and, and early 90s, and that a lot of what Donald Trump said about that in the in the campaign was demagogic and, and wrong. But when you think about the political challenges involved here, I do think that the extent to which the movement just kind of went on autopilot with the same like this is what we were saying in 2012 and 2013 and 2014 when crime was going down and down and down, even when exactly as the national media started paying more attention to Black Lives Matter and bipartisan criminal justice reform, like the crime rate was going up and everybody in the sort of, you know, right thinking people were like, ah, mass incarceration is a problem. And then you had a guy, Donald Trump, who was offering you know what I what I think is like the common sense man in the street point of view, which is like the murder rate going up is really bad and we need to get tougher on crime, not softer on crime. And you know, I I think that that the sort of missing piece here that that uh Mark Kleiman had in a, a much older uh, a Vox piece um for us was to like actually think about like what are ways that people who don't want to see this astronomical prison population, uh, like, what can we actually do to reduce the incidence of crime in the United States uh, that will be effective and, relatively speaking, humane and less destructive to communities? Because I, I do think that we're seeing that it's a difficult political problem and hoping that a kind of elite consensus can drive a laxer policy forward in the face of like actual rising crime is is really really difficult it's hard even when crime's falling i mean i think this is something you see true in a lot of policy areas where there's a focus on like fixing the um you know very small challenge at hand like educational outcomes or health outcomes or even criminal outcomes when uh, and that is actually only touching the tip of the iceberg that it's a very small part of whatever is happening in an individual's life, and there are so many things happening, you know, outside of the classroom, outside of the workplace, outside of the doctor's office that are contributing to the outcomes. And those are the things that are very, very, very difficult to change. Like you can, you know, work on getting better teachers, you can work on like getting more doctor appointments, but that's stuff outside of like these particular places where you can actually host the intervention that is often 
really the root cause of a lot of the problems that we're trying to solve for. Magazines are the best. Uh, I, I got my start working in magazines. My mother worked for, for magazines uh, for, for much of her life. Uh, my father worked for magazines. I love them. It's, it's a great way to relax, to get informed, and to sort of, you know, stay on top of what's happening in the world without being inundated with, with the kind of news cycle. At the same time, these like bundles of paper that are mailed to your house, it's like it's barbaric. And, and that's where Texture comes in. Um, Texture has brought together a whole bunch of leading magazine publishers to create an app that gives you like all the magazines in the world. You can read them. It has exclusive digital features beyond the magazine itself. They've got videos. They make daily recommendations to you, uh, interactives. But most of all, the the core product is the magazines themselves. You know, you can get... uh, Great brands like Vogue, Fast Company, Rolling Stone, Cosmopolitan, all that stuff is out there. You can keep up with with the best writing and you can do it in a modern digital way. It's searchable. You mark what you like. You check out back issues. You get your bonus features. You get it on your phone. You get it on your iPad, your, you know, other kind of tablet, whatever it is. It's a really great app and it's all for the ridiculously low price of $9.99 a month, right? You get over 200 magazines for $9.99 a month. But if you sign up right now at texture.com slash weeds, you get a 14-day free trial. So instead of subscribing to like one or two magazines, you could get hundreds and tons and tons of, of extra bonus digital features uh, for way less. It's one of Apple's top 2016 iPad apps. Uh, I've got an iPad. It's, it's a great way to experience texture and to experience the worlds of, of magazine journalism. Uh, so bottom line, right now, 14-day free trial when you go to texture.com slash weeds. That's 14 days to try texture for free when you go to texture.com slash weeds, texture.com slash weeds. One of the things I'm curious if you guys have any knowledge on this, and if not, it's fine because I'm putting you on the spot. But I'm curious like how how other countries, you know, deal with this. I, I don't think they have less violent crime, but maybe I'm wrong there. I mean, one of it is guns, obviously, more stringent gun regulations. But presuming that, like, I, I would just guess that people in other countries like are not thrilled about having violent criminals, like, out and about in their streets. But if there's international examples of how... Um, there How other are, countries have deal with this because we have a much higher incarceration rate than most. There are other countries that do have less violent crime than we do. Um, I don't I don't want to I don't remember stats off the top of my head, but there are really good analyses that show that you actually cannot if you just do an equation based on the amount of violent crime, you know, you do not end up with our incarceration rate. That And even in America, the incarceration rate and the violent crime rates do not move in tandem at all. It's a it's a it's a totally it actually turns out to be a totally different thing. Um, I want to go back to something Matt mentioned, which is uh, a piece Mark Kleiman is a crime expert wrote for Vox about probably two years ago that I, I've always thought is really brilliant and interesting and maybe a little could be a little dystopic, but but is worth considering. The piece is called um, and, and again, we'll put this in show notes. The piece is called We Don't Need to Keep Criminals in Prison to Punish Them. The underlying idea, which Mark Kleiman and he wrote this along with Angela Hawken and Ross Halpern. The underlying idea is something called graduated reentry. And basically, the, the insight is that we used to have, for reasons technological, maybe reasons that were simply uncreative, it's like this binary question. Are you in prison or are you not? And then we ended up, you know, creating other things like parole and, you know, probation. And so, so there's a little bit more in the system. But basically, the, the insight of Kleiman and, and his co-authors is that Particularly given modern surveillance technology, and this is where things do get a little bit dystopic, you really could have many more gradations between being locked up 
um, and having all of your freedom taken away and just being under surveillance to make sure that you are not doing the things that had gotten you in trouble in the first place or something. That there's, there's a lot of steps along the way that now technologically it is very doable to do that in a way that it just wasn't before, right? You think about how the, the traditional probation and, and parole systems worked. You had to go and check in with a guy or, or a woman and, you know, if you didn't come, then they had to do a manhunt for you and there was a whole thing here. It's, I mean, GPS is very cheap. And so it opens up a lot of creativity if you want that. But one of the problems that I think you see in this is, and, and I think you see it in the, in the broader discussion overall, we sort of have to decide what we're trying to do here. Are we trying to rehabilitate people? Are we trying to punish people? Are we trying to save money? Do we not care how much money? Are we trying to just get the lowest crime rate possible? There are a lot of goals that your justice system and your, and your, your prison system can be attempting to accomplish. And we as a country, I think, have not settled on which goals those actually are. So, I mean, if we said the question is rehabilitation. Right. And so what we're interested in is recidivism rates and, you know, whether people get jobs when they leave prison, you would create something completely different than what we have. Right. If, if the point was people make mistakes and what we want to do is get them into a place where they will not make that mistake again and live a productive life, you would not do it this way. You just wouldn't. Um, punishment, which I think particularly in the 80s and 90s was actually what we were doing. Um, maybe you would do it this way. We went to very maximum punishments for drug dealers, for other, other people. We had in, in California, we had the three strikes law, which created unbelievably awful consequences. Um, still does, but, but, um, it was in effect when I was growing up. Uh, but we haven't made that decision. And so one thing that I think you see in, in the Michelle Alexander books and the FAF books, but in the broader discussion about this, in the difference between the criminal justice bipartisan working group in the Senate and Donald Trump is an often unacknowledged difference in ends. Donald Trump, like his first act in politics was he put a, he paid for a New York Times advertisement calling for the execution of the Central Park Five, who were later exonerated by DNA evidence. But but he what his op-ed was about was not catching them or rehabilitating them. It was trying to get them a harsher punishment. What he wanted the system to do was punish more, whereas what some people want to do is rehabilitate more. What some people seem to – other people seem to just make an argument that it would just be great if it cost as little as possible. And I think that, that these collisions of different goals make it really impossible to say what conversation we're even having, much as how to achieve the ends we want. I want to talk about two two more things. One is a a, a program that I think had not existed at, at the time of Climate's piece, but that is uh, been rolled out in South Dakota, and that that I think is a good concrete example, and not that dystopian to think about. Is uh, they have a program called Twenty Four Seven Sobriety, which is a way of punishing people who commit alcohol related offenses. Which is you know it's a good example, right? Like like drunk driving, it's a serious problem. Like people die because people are on the road driving drunk at the same time when you get when you have a case where someone gets pulled over driving drunk and they like haven't killed someone in a horrifying accident the idea of like locking them up for a lengthy prison term i think strikes a lot of people as you know it's too much it's it's too much and and so what they do under 24 7 sobriety is you have to take a breathalyzer test twice a day and if you skip your test or you're not clean, you go to jail for like two days and then you come out again, right? So the idea is to like not have you be rotting in jail out of your community experiencing horrific deprivation for a long time, but to use the fact that jails exist and the certainty of detection because they know you're a problem 
to compel you to stay sober. And it's a pain. I mean, I'm sure people who are enrolled in this program don't enjoy it. And it's punitive in in that sense. But like, it's really not so bad to like not be drunk. And it's in fact, in your interests to not drink and drive, as well as in the the larger interests of society. And it's a way of saying, you know, it's not about like, rehabilitation in a touchy feely sense but it's about like what is the social bottom line here and the bottom line is we do not want people getting drunk and driving automobiles so we are going to stop them from doing that but we're going to use the least forceful intervention possible so that you know if you do what we want like you keep living a sort of productive life. And there's variants of that 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 could work for a lot of things. I mean, obviously, uh, you know, that's particularly strong because the crime there like literally just involves your alcohol consumption. But, you know, there's a lot of people who get mixed up in crime because they fundamentally have substance abuse problems. And looking at measures that, you know, have both treatment but also some stick to it that directly address those those kinds of things, I think could be uh, – you know, reasonably promising. The other thing that I think often gets missing in these discussions is America is in some ways really good at punishing criminals, but really bad at actually catching them. Like in 2015, 62% of murders in DC were solved. And that's like not, that's not great. I mean, if you got a 62% on your math test, people would consider that like a huge crisis. And it's, it's interesting that the political system processes like, excessively lax punishment of convicted offenders as like the worst thing a politician could do but just literally letting people get away with murder is like not a big deal in in a weird way and you know i think it's like common sense right that like really we can all agree that murderers should be punished like somewhat and the calculation that well we'll catch half the murderers and we'll give them incredibly harsh punishments versus like let's try to catch them all and give them medium sized punishments T- to me that's like a a big difference there and what we are currently landing on where we're sort of substituting very harsh punishment for good like crime fighting um seems like a, a bad trade off. Listen, if, if you've been settling for, for store-bought underwear, five packs, three packs, whatever it is, I've got something that will change your life for the better. It's me undies. Uh, I know it's it's funny to be talking about underwear, and yet the fact is, you wear underwear every day. I wear underwear every day. Maybe you don't. That's gross. Uh, and it really it matters. It changes your day how it feels. And MeUndies is seriously soft, feel-good underwear delivered right to your door. They're designed in Los Angeles. It's made from sustainably sourced micro-modal. It's a, it's a super soft fabric. They say it's three times softer than cotton. I don't know exactly how you quantify that. I, I can promise you it's a lot softer. Uh, they're softer than soft. Lux undies come in an ever-changing selection of classic colors, bold shades, and adventurous patterns. So you can tailor your, your, your underpants to your personal style. And guess what? You can save time and money each month with a monthly subscription but if you're not ready for a subscription but you just want to try it out that's okay you can still save because me undies is offering 20 percent off your first pair you just use their special url meundies.com slash weeds and get 20 percent off your first pair so you know don't just laugh i mean think about it seriously like wouldn't you enjoy better underwear revamp your underwear drawer you deserve it once again meundies.com slash weeds meundies.com slash weeds you know what else seems like a bad trade-off <laughs> 
Ending access to birth control. Dun, dun, dun. Well, it won't end all access, yeah, okay. but yeah. Okay, so Donald Trump has brought religious freedom back to America. Yes, well, he's Ella working on it. He has a draft. Um, we, we, we can say Merry Christmas again. And also... Last night around 9 o'clock, uh, myself and Dylan Scott, another healthcare reporter here at Fox, you've heard on the weeds, we got a copy of a draft um, regulation that the Trump administration is working on that really widens the exemptions to the Obamacare birth control mandate in a way that almost nullifies the mandate, I think is fair to say. So a bit of background is helpful here. As I'm sure many of our listeners know, Obamacare is a requirement that insurance companies cover basically all types of contraceptives with no sort of cost sharing for the individual where you don't have to pay out of pocket when you go to the doctor. Um, this is provision that, you know, is quite popular. I think, you know, even if you look across all voters, it is but like an 80 or 90 percent popularity um, rating, but has also been contested by some religious groups, particularly religious universities, religious hospitals, as well as businesses owned by um, religious people who have said, we don't want to cover birth control. And this all really culminated in the Hobby Lobby lawsuit a few years ago, where the Supreme Court ruled that the Obama administration had to make more exemptions, that they had to let more people out of this requirement. Anyway, so the Obama administration has, was really aggressive in protecting the Obamacare mandate. They wanted to make the exceptions as narrow as possible to let, you know, not as many people opt out. This new regulation that we got a copy of last night, it essentially lets any employer who wants to raise a religious and moral exemption opt out of the um, birth control requirement. And one of the things that's um, really notable about it to me, it's not like you have to like apply and say, hey, government, like I have this religious or moral objection. You just stop covering it. Oh, like really? you don't. So this is one of the big things that was kind of at issue is um, the Obama administration said, OK, OK, we'll do this exemption because the court says we have to. You just have to file the paperwork and we'll make sure that you're exempt. Religious groups said, you know, we don't want to file that paperwork. That essentially makes us complicit in your birth control mandate. We want to have no part. We just want to stop covering it. Um, and that's the process that this Trump regulation would end. It would basically say, hey, you're an employer. You don't want to cover birth control. Just stop covering birth control. You have to notify your employees. You have to like send them an update that your plan no longer covers birth control. But that's essentially it. And that actually feels like it's small, but it's also big. Like this is not an exemption you apply for anymore. It's just an offer on the table that lets you stop covering birth control. So in a kind of wonky, weird way, it really is gutting the birth control mandate really so significantly. What's up? Say I'm an employer who doesn't really care about God or whatever, but I but I like money. Yeah. Would would dropping this coverage be a good way to save money? So it's like, hard. Yeah, by yeah. Putting, like I have a moral objection to spending all this money on birth control yeah. and I would like to institute a copayment. So you can't set up a co-maybent. This is not like I have a moral objection to free birth control. I would like everyone to pay $25 when they go to the doctor. But what you can do, one of the things that are really specific about in this regulation is you could stop covering expensive birth control because you have like a moral objection to spending your money on IUDs. For Wait, example. really? You can have a moral objection to IUDs, but you can feel fine about the pill? Oh, yeah. Well, this is actually like at the core of a lot of these cases. The moral objection that a lot of um, religious groups have is not to birth control pills. It's really to IUDs. IUDs because they feel like the um, 
how an IUD actually works is a little less defined in science. We actually have a great Weeds in the Wild episode on this. But they are so, – so the key concern in the Hobby Lobby lawsuit was just about IUDs. It wasn't about birth control pills. It wasn't about rings or other forms of contraceptives. It was the fact that science has not been able to prove 100 percent that IUDs couldn't in any possible scenario stop – an egg and a sperm from fertilizing. But would I say like that's would I save money as an employer by particularly ruling out IUDs? Yeah. So IUDs are expensive. They're like five hundred or so dollars. Yeah. Um and the gains of an IUD of preventing pregnancy like might not be realized during the time you're like so in general, like birth control saves money. Right. Like because babies are expensive. Because babies are expensive, but like when People change jobs a lot, particularly like if you're a young person in your 20s or 30s. Using right. If you have IUD. a lot, of, if you have a lot of churn, if you have a lot of covering churn, someone's IUD that's going to work for years is not necessarily in your. Well, interest. if you cover an IUD of someone who's going to like stick with your company long term, that's great. But let's say you like buy them an IUD and they like leave in like six months, like yeah. you just sunk five hundred dollars yeah. into that. Yeah, so is this something Donald Trump ran on? He talked about it here and there. I don't think it was like the central issue, but he has promised you know groups more religious liberty is framed uh-huh. it as an issue of religious liberty this is something that you know some religious universities um, privately owned businesses have been kind of pushing back on there are pending lawsuits about this like the paperwork that right. you had to file i know a little bit about donald trump's new york years does anybody believe that donald trump has a moral objection to covering birth like it's no the did, did, did you guys read there was a great piece about um planned parenthood focus groups that they had done after the election and and it really showed how like trump trump really like got it both ways on this like he made this very sort of cynical but quite explicit sort of bargain with um jerry falwell jr and other leaders of the evangelical community that like obviously donald trump was a totally fake christian but that he was gonna like go all in on their policy agenda and you know he gave them neil gorsuch he, he's giving them this he had an earlier executive order on, on religious liberty they are getting like the full christian right policy agenda uh, but these planned parenthood focus groups that they did with um, you know, exactly the kind of people who tended to flip from Obama to Trump, right? Which, which sometimes gets, gets confused in this. Like, there are many long time white working class conservative voters in America, typically very culturally conservative people. Um, but Obama had done well with northern working class whites who don't attend church regularly, right? A sort of democratic friendly subslice of that group. Those people tended to flip toward Trump and Planned Parenthood interviewed people who like have used Planned Parenthood services but but voted for Trump. And a lot of them took Trump's insincerity on this as very reassuring to them. Right. That like Donald Trump was not like one of these super devout, super pious, super religious people. George W. Bush, Mitt Romney kind of guys who come out of the South or Utah or whatever and want to fuss around with everybody's personal life. Like he was clearly a secular northern person. And they found that. This is, again, like the belief that like, sure, he's like saying this, but like, that's not who this guy is. Like, he's not. Because right. like it's, like, it's like nobody thinks that like Donald Trump deep in his heart is like sad about people's religious objections to birth control. Right. Like that's like like it's a total joke. Right. And I think uh, one just underestimates the power of political party networks 
at one's peril here. Like Republicans as a whole were very jazzed up about this. Donald Trump is definitely a Republican. So he is doing the Republican policy, even though like. Well, Andy brought on a vice president who is super jazzed up about this. Right. Like Mike Pence is someone who's been like yeah. very strong in the pro-life movement, very like big on religious liberty. They then bring in like two leaders of the pro-life movement into HHS to kind of like into some top leadership positions. So, right. Like the party network, like clearly like comes into play within months of coming into office. But this is one of these interesting places where Donald Trump was able to exist in 2016 uh, uh, in all of his policies. I know we used to talk about it like are serious or literally, but in a state of quantum uncertainty, he was everywhere and nowhere. Right. He was defending Planned Parenthood on stages, but also promising to defund them. He was clearly a libertine from New York with a very checkered marital and sexual history, but also promising, you know, to, to get rid of Obama's birth control mandate. And one of the things that is happening as Donald Trump is in office is everything is resolving, right? Like, like the, we are opening the box and the cat is dead. <laughs> And like we know what Donald Trump's healthcare plan is now, right? He has endorsed an actual healthcare plan. It has a CBO score. Like we have, we have information on that. We know what he's done on the birth control mandate. And it's an interesting place. And, and Matt, you and I were having a version of this discussion yesterday, but Trump has not, does not have anyone and does not himself seem interested in having anybody create a kind of internally coherent Trumpism. And as such, the sort of box of what Donald Trump is is now being filled by, like, on the one hand, Donald Trump's temperamental tics and scandals. On the other hand, just like a pretty hard right agenda. This is a very unpopular move, right? When you pull what is popular in Obamacare, the birth control mandate, as you said, it's like in the 80-ish percent. It's very, very, very high. Um, similarly, pre-existing conditions, which is another thing that is now under fire, very, very, very high. Uh Cutting tax on rich people, what you're doing, that pulls very low. I mean, on and on and on down the line. Like, Trump is not himself all that popular, and he's yoking himself to a very, very unpopular agenda. And, you know, if you listened to him and if you if you looked at him, you could have imagined if he had had the right people around him and it empowered them in the right ways, like how they could have created something that tried to rationalize Trumpism in the way that it 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 derived popularity from being emotionally and in some cases substantively different from where the party was before. But he's just not bothered to do any of that. And so now, like, at some point, I mean, Republicans are going to run on this record in 2018. He's presumably going to run on this record in 2020. And he's not going to be able to be in all places at once. He's resolving himself down to being like Paul Ryan's agenda with Donald Trump's hairpiece. And it's not a good fit uh it's not i think what the country wanted it's not i think what people thought they were getting uh i I just i'm in addition to the fact that i think this is bad i also think it's just it's a bad political idea for him he's not leaving anything of trumpism left those things that had the planned parenthood uh focus groups i mean i could totally understand those focus groups i was watching those debates where he stood up there and despite not having a different policy position kept arguing the planned parenthood does great work on behalf of women and he was just not going to shit on them like other republicans but then you but this know, is like consistent like this is everything we've everything, seen on yeah. health care where you say well i'm not one of those guys who's going to leave people uninsured i'm going to cover everybody i'm different but one of the bizarre things happening around this is Trump's insistence that he still is different. So, like, I, I watch him give interview after interview where he says, well, we're going to protect everyone with pre-existing conditions. We cover everybody. It, like, he is stuck with a lot of the campaign rhetoric, even when he has defined his policy positions to be completely 
different from them. Yeah. And I think at some point, like it doesn't, it might not even catch up with you at the point where you're saying things that are quite different from your actual policy positions. I think the point it catches up with you when those things actually get enacted. And one of the things that's a little unique about this birth control regulation is most regulations, there's a comment period where you collect comments, people send things in. This regulation, they say because this exemption is so badly needed because people are suffering, that it would take effect the moment it's published in the Federal Register. Before people comment, before people weigh in on it, it would just go into effect the day it's published. So any company, like if Vox wants to send us a notice the day this is published saying, hey, our insurance plan um, doesn't cover contraceptives anymore, that would be within the bounds of federal regulations. Um, So it seems kind of to speak to your point of really setting himself up, like this is possibly like the least popular way to do this is dismantling a popular regulation and doing it like right away so people can feel the impact like as quick as possible. To, to zoom this out a little bit, one one take that I've heard from people for, for years on this is that this whole morass around the Hobby Lobby issue goes to show that a single payer system that would not present this question of employers violating their consciences uh, would would be way better and, and would solve these problems. And since there's more, you know, uh, legislative enthusiasm for, for single payer programs, I, I think it's really worth pointing out that that is totally, 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 totally wrong. That the, you know, formalism here, yes, has to do with the fact that it's an employer provided thing. But the reality is just that there are hot button disputes about the legitimacy of certain kinds of healthcare services in the United States with like abortion at the very pinnacle of that hot button controversialness, various forms of birth control, you know, filtering out lots of other things on the edges, fertility treatments, you know, um, surrogacy. There's lots and lots of different things there. And, you know, this will be the subject of endless to and fro political debate. Um, that's not to say it's like the worst idea in the world, but when you say that we're going to have a democratic decision process that is going to tell us what healthcare services will be paid for by the government and what healthcare services uh, people are just going to be out on their own for out of pocket. Like that's going to be a political process. It's not going to be decided by, uh, you know, a panel of medical experts. Um, and it's certainly not going to be decided by like your most left wing friend who works at Planned Parenthood. Um, there's going to be a, a tussle about it. Some stuff is going to be left on the cutting room floor. And for all the hideous problems with creating an employer based system through backdoor tax subsidies, it does create a situation in which there is a diversity of health plan offerings and people don't feel the need to have a a centralized decision about it. And, And we saw this, you know, in the Affordable Care Act, right, where to get the bill passed, conservative Democrats made them put in an amendment to say, um, individual marketplace plans couldn't cover abortions. Right. Not exactly. So that the tax credits couldn't go to abortions. They can still cover them. And there was never a movement to deny the tax exemption to employer sponsored plans that provided abortion coverage. Right. Even though there is this same subsidization mechanism. And like the more you centralize this decision making, the more uh, these kinds of fights are going to be central to you know, the political argument. And, you know, that's like a, a although re- can I make a reasonable one counter argument on this? Yeah. 
which is um, I agree with the, the basic point you're making, although I sometimes think one of the interesting things about this debate is if you posit a world where Democrats had – liberals had sufficient strength to pass a single-payer bill, right? Because that's a very disruptive big bill. Then you're probably also positing a world where they have the strength, at least initially, to uh, set most of the agenda on, on what gets covered on it. So it's like there's a funny thing with some of these debates where it's like if you assume the constellation of forces – then some of these problems fall away because you're already assuming a much more weakened opposition than the one we have now where, where these well, things are Well, but I think possible. it's more, you know, if California is going forward with a California single-payer bill, but they need all kinds of federal waivers because they need oh, that's to tap Medicaid That's a fair point. Funds. Yes, yes. I you know what I mean? That. Like it's – just American politics is messy. Yeah. And like, you know, the healthcare system is going to just have these kind of controversies uh, where like in Medicare, right? Like Medicare I think does not cover people's abortions uh, because it's for uh, – senior citizens and we don't like think about it but you couldn't like you can say oh everybody likes medicare medicare is uncontroversial let's have medicare for everyone but you wouldn't nobody actually wants like literally that like a healthcare program for senior citizens for nine-year-olds doesn't like make sense medicare i don't think covers a lot of forms of birth control right right i mean exactly you know we can laugh haha but like obviously it's important right what people mean when they say medicare for all is something like a comprehensive set of healthcare services um but like the political process of defining what that means is going to be very contentious who knew healthcare could be this complicated not me that's what i ask This is not the first time we, we've talked about Wink here on this show, uh, but suffice it to say, wine is, is great. It's really nice to have something to you know relax with back at your home, something to sip. Uh, it it makes a, a stressful day more relaxing. It makes a relaxing day more fun. It's, it's really great, um, but it's hard to get your hands on good, really enjoyable wine in a convenient, affordable way, and that's why Wink comes in. You go to trywink.com, spelled T-R-Y-W-I-N-C.com. And you take what they call a brief palate profile quiz. They just like ask you some questions about, about what you like. And they recommend distinct and interesting wines customized to your palate, shipped to your door every month. Uh, none of your time is wasted on a run to the store. Uh, no more time spent guessing what you want because they base the wines they send you on your taste preferences. And then you, you can do ratings so the, the matching gets better and better over time. And so you can get a kind of like high-end luxury sommelier type experience, but you can get it with much more affordable bottles. Uh, they're working directly with growers, kind out middlemen giving you uh you know something that's uh, affordable but not like cheap as in bad it's just um something that you know it won't break the bank but but you're gonna have a lot of fun with it um so you join for free you skip any month you cancel any time and they have a 100 satisfaction guarantee uh okay so right now wink is offering listeners 20 dollars off your first order when you go to trywink.com slash weeds they'll even cover the cost of shipping that's trywink spelled t-r-y-w-i-n-c.com slash weeds to get 20 dollars off your first order now plus complimentary shipping trywink.com slash weeds so we have a white paper that i found interesting i'll see what you guys think of it it's kind of a last minute addition to the show and this is a um nbr paper about elite credit cards it's called status goods experimental (laughs) (laughs) all right this is going great status goods experimental evidence from platinum credit cards and it really is this like international team of economists, um, University of Chicago, the World Bank, Harvard's and folks from the Brazilian government, they all team up with this Indonesian bank, this very large Indonesian bank, to essentially see, like, do these gimmicks to market platinum credit cards work? Like, 
if you just like describe something as exciting and like, you know, elite, can you get more people to sign up for your credit card? And the answer they essentially find is yes. Um, They do a few different versions of this experiment. They have one where they have a control group and a trial group. In one case, they just describe the benefits of this new credit card in the trial group, they add the word platinum in. And all of a sudden, people are way more interested in this card that has literally the exact same benefits. There's another version of this that they do where, you know, they talk about the benefits of the card, but then they tack on a paragraph where they say, and only rich people can have this card. Like, poor people are not allowed in this card. And all of a sudden, people are, again, way more interested in signing up for this card. Um, I was surprised in this paper to see the extent that these gimmicks work, that, like, it seems like a very impressive behavioral economics intervention that they are that they are showing and just like weird one thing i liked about this paper it's just weird to me that this experiment exists in the first place that like large indonesian bank was like sure researchers like let's like do this experiment on our bank customers and like they won't really know about it but like this will be great um so well they've learned a maybe a more effective way to scam their customers yeah it's I, totally I was... unimpressed this work they just reverse engineered normal credit card advertising like of course it like why would they all do this if it didn't work but not just credit card right i, mean, I believe in the market <laughs> there's a reason why like bmws like say that they are bmws on the outside of the car and then if you upgrade to like the special m class high-end internals they put an m also on the outside of your car <laughs> like that m on the outside of your car it doesn't make it go faster but it lets people know that you have the special fast one and it's just like i mean it's an interesting experiment if only because like data is good but like we know that like brands and marketing matter right i was still surprised so like i I do get it for like a car that like you drive around and like maybe maybe i don't hang out with like super exciting high-powered people but i was surprised to the extent to which like people were willing to value something described as platinum or something like not available to poor people that is like literally kept in your wallet like you know, ninety nine. Like you're not driving around in it. You're not wearing it like a handbag. Like oh. I do. The fact so that people I like to use with, the card. So more. I think credit. I think one reason credit cards are such a powerful status object is they're actually one of the few places people implicitly directly compare their wealth against each other. When you go out to dinner with your friends and everybody splits a check and puts down credit cards, right? That is like a very rare moment when it's like. So what is going on with your bank account? Like, what have you qualified for? <laughs> like, I'm not saying that's good, but it doesn't surprise me that there is a um, – that people feel a status competition with them because they are – in a way that pulling out a $20 or a $50 bill does not, credit cards, you pull yeah, them out and they're a, signif- they're a signifier of wealth to people. And that feels to me like what credit card companies are very effective at, at – activating um now whether or not the de- the underlying deal is good what i think is interesting here is obviously people are not paying that much attention to the underlying deal and i think in a lot of the cases these deals are complicated i didn't have a credit card for a long time because like they basically scared me and i thought i was gonna get snookered into something i didn't understand but um then you got snookered into something. <laughs> i got snookered into something i didn't understand yeah well now i think there are these good websites that will just like somebody else is figuring this out yeah, for yeah, you yeah. and like telling you which one to get but yeah, I mean, I don't know. Credit cards is a status object that doesn't feel surprising. To I don't me. know. Maybe like a lot of this is based on my like. I don't think I've ever looked at anyone else's credit card and been like, "Wow, like you." you Maybe because yours is so good. <laughs> I, I, I do think. I, I do also think you know the the setting of the experiment is is relevant, right? I mean, Indonesia is a, a middle income country in which, um, you know, there are probably a lot of people who have a a direct you know family connection or personal experience of the kind of like 
dire like rural poverty in which like you can't have credit cards at all kind of kind of situations i mean i think i i I think right like the threshold i think for the most elite credit card was fifty thousand dollars a year income we're talking like like a lower income environment yeah and and i think you know and i think particularly in, in asian countries that have seen relatively rapid economic growth so there's been a lot of like changes in people's social status and and family status there's even more status consciousness than there is in in the united states where i mean not to say it doesn't exist here but it's like the the more you're like accelerating up a growth curve the more like hey mom i made it you know it's like an important yeah but i guess i go back like if i'm gonna invest in status consciousness like i want like the i want the thing to like show off all the time versus like that tiny interaction I might have like some of the time. Um, one of the interesting things they also show in this study is they show some evidence that people are more willing to use their um, high level credit cards and in social interaction. So there definitely is like a level of that going on. But I don't know if I'm going to spend money on like status signaling. I was surprised like this is something because presumably like you're, you're making decisions like these people are not wealthy enough where they can just like literally spend money on any sort of status item it's surprising like that this one is especially alluring well, one question i have doubt i have about studies like this uses kind of experimental evidence is in the real world how much of it would translate into the person spending money on it right because these are they basically put people in rooms i understand the study and gave them the term sheets and talked to them about the thing and said are you interested yeah they have and like they said, calling yes. over the phone like right. like your bank might so, call you, know, you and ask interested and would do it are, are, are different the other thing though to, to your point actually I have been – in the last couple of years, I have seen what strikes me as commercially successful advances in credit card aesthetics, <laughs> right? Cards have gotten heavier. People started putting the numbers on the back so they have this clean look. They use like fancy metal. That's part of these the These fancy metals. And I am actually surprised that we haven't seen more like gaudy innovation in credit cards because I think this is a very powerful effect. And like material science has advanced far enough that you could really like change the game here. Like there's no re- – I mean that you have to – like ultimately that has to be something the credit card reader can scan. But you could have all kinds of crazy shapes on top of the strip. And I mean some credit this, cards, thing, this stuff could have like little like blinking lights. Like you could do all kinds of things to make sure people knew what credit card you're handling. And I'm a little bit surprised we haven't actually just seen like more of an effort to make the credit card into a status symbol, which we've seen um, among other things with watches. Right. In China, like the watches are huge huge so you can display more uh you can hold your credit card (laughs) but they're Uh, a powerful status symbol so there's just a lot of innovation around them so so a a funny you know like uh uh credit card arcana that that came my way years ago was that there was this this litigation in 2009 2010 and the the subject of it was that a company had come out with a new card that you you had to pay a couple hundred dollars for, and they were calling it the black card. Um, and American Express sued them and tried to say that they, they shouldn't be able to trademark that name because they, for years, had been marketing a credit card that was black, and it was called the Centurion card. And it was this like ultra special card. You needed to spend $250,000 a year. Um, it, it had a, like a $7,000 annual fee. You you couldn't even apply for the card. You had to be asked to, to join it. Did it have any benefits? Um, I don't know uh, exactly what, <laughs> what what the benefits were. But what I do know is that in the in the aughts, it was a popular like hip hop lyrical reference as like a, a an example of, of your wealth. So so Lil Wayne, Bow Wow, uh, <laughs> they they had songs where they would mention. And they this was the key thing: the, the Centurion card was black, but it was 
in the rap songs, they referred to it as the black card. Uh, it's in a Kanye West song. There's apparently a. a Wait, can cl- you quote us a lyric? Or uh, oh my god, is that a black card? I turn around and reply, why yes, but I prefer the term African American Express. The clips had a "We Got It for Cheap" black card era mixtape about you know how awesome they were. Apparently, in there they run down the then benefits. Um, but <laughs> but so you know this idea got the obvious fact is that like a normal hip-hop fan could not get the centurion card which was the point of referencing it in the lyrics but then these other people had the idea of marketing a card that they would call the black card and would be expensive but cheap enough that like a normal middle-class person could afford it and they were like having some success with it until american express sued them and uh you know it it all went into the world of litigation but it's just to show like the practitioners are well aware that these cards are status symbols and not like narrow cost benefit analyses. I think it like frustrates the data nerd in me who researched a credit yeah. card very carefully that I came at this with an earnest, like, well, you like look at the <laughs> benefits and that's how you choose a credit card. And then to see like that's actually people just like the heavy cards. Although I do wonder as we move to digital payments and Apple Pay if all of this becomes obsolete as we can no longer throw down our that's going to be the great question how how do they make how do they create a status symbol when you do i think this is actually one of the problems they're having yes like it looks kind of nerdy to pay with your apple with your iphone or something does oh i've been doing that i'm getting this all wrong i'm just like a nerd researching benefit programs with apple pay if you get the apple watch you can do the apple pay off your watch oh and then you can have a fancy like band or something yeah all right so that's that's the key all all of life is status competition it's very unfortunate All right. Well. So you should demonstrate superior status by telling your friends, colleagues, social media followers, etc., to download episodes of The Weeds, America's Finest Podcast. Um, you know, thank you. Thank you for doing that. Uh, join the Facebook group if you haven't. Uh, great discussion there. Uh, your credit card tips, uh, always appreciated. Um, I'm going to quickly plug my podcast. Um, oh, yeah. The Ezra Klein show. <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. just going to exit the room uh, as you guys work this out. I've got Kwame Anthony Apia. Uh, Kwame Anthony Apia on the podcast. He's a philosopher at New York University and the author of Cosmopolitanism. Um, we have, a, I thought, a really interesting discussion about what has become like one of the most politically reviled words and philosophies, cosmopolitanism. I think people would enjoy that. Uh, thanks to our producer, Bird Pinkerton, and we will see you on Friday.